0: The most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles.
0: Buck Benny, a two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and
2: never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I am joined with uh, John Henderson and Terry Phillips and Kathy fuller Seely. We are so glad to have you join us for Orson Welles. And this is the really Orson Welles Commentaries. This commentary, he drops more names than I think in any of the commentaries. <laughs> he is <laughs> dropping names left and right. and Just acting like we know all these people. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, Orson. So uh, this one might be a little harder to follow, but he, he does cover a lot of ground. And it gives us some interesting insight again into uh, the soldiers coming back from the war and uh, their issues and things, which I think is really interesting. I, I think first we will head over to kathy and see uh what what kathy thinks i know she researched a little bit on on uh at least one of the folks one to of the names that sure. gets dropped and i know terry to probably has a ton sure. of names to go over so go
3: and that that is uh, the, the this episode of borson um strikes me it was so interesting because it was a world we'll never know again uh, we've got a world where everybody is on tiktok their twitter feed everybody except the soon-to-be ex-president um, where um, almost every celebrity is a media celebrity. But back in, you know, in every big city, but especially New York in the, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you could be this rock tour around town. You could have this famous bar, club, restaurant. You could know all the bigwigs. You could, you know, do all these things and yet have people outside of New York not know who the hell you are. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that's. As I said, um, a tooth shore today would be a judge on The Masked Singer, uh, you know, would be a a running Twitter feed and have a YouTube account. And it just is interesting to me to think about how immersed in media we are today. Yes. That's, you know, that it's so tied up with celebrity of any kind. But that here's the difference between now and back in 1946, when you could have some kind of of of, a local celebrity right uh and know everybody and yet have the rest of the country not know who the heck you were i wish maybe carrie do you know anybody who probably ever went to Toots shores or hung out there at the you know that's because i don't know anybody who's ever been to 21 which i think is now closing all that world of new york nightlife i got to the russian tea room three times when i was young but I never got to do, you know, all this famous sort of New York nightlife of old. And,
2: and Shores was uh, around for a long time. He and, died in 77. So, yeah, okay. I, I would assume he was still uh, having his place even then. So, yeah.
3: Well, he, he ended up, I mean, times changed in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, 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 those kind of restaurants are going out of style. I read that he, he kind of his finances got really iffy. By the '60s, and his youngest child ended up. But after Toots and his wife passed away, their youngest child was um, uh, uh, raised by Bob and Dolores Hope. Um, So his. I thought you were going to say raised by wolves. So
2: I was. That's the hopes are better.
3: (laughs) But this is again Wikipedia. It must be true. Uh, But I said so. um, But indeed, throwing and just a passing mention. You know, oh, everything is peaceful and nice, and George Jean Nathan was kind of, uh, who was also mentioned, was the literary critic, popular literary critic of the time, kind of the George Will of the of the magazine movie newspaper, uh, movie play set. He was engaged to Lillian Gish for a number of years. Um, so, uh, uh, all, uh, oh, and mentioning all of a sudden that he said, because Theodore Dreiser had just died the other day. Theodore Dreiser wrote um, American Tragedy, so,
2: uh, in part, I think this is just Orson going. I know everything. I know yeah, that's <laughs> what it felt like. So, I felt like. Ooh, drop so, a name! Drop a name! Drop a name! Drop I, name. Know I know
3: God. So,
2: well, in the week before this, that Kathy and I presented last week was just essentially the whole thing was a, a story that he read, uh, except for the very end. So, I think he was he was kind of. Compensating for the fact that last week didn't cover very much yeah. ground, he was like, "This week we're going to cover a ton of ground," and so he did. Um, John, what did what did you think? Well, I had a totally different experience
4: listening to this because I literally did not know a single person that he referenced.
0: <laughs>
4: in yeah. fact, I wasn't even sure that these people were famous in any way. Yeah, we're real people. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, I mean, you know, in, in sometimes he'll talk about, oh, I was just in Puerto Rico when I saw, you know, Lillian or whatever, right? And yeah. Lillian's nobody, right? And so yeah. as far as I was concerned, this was all human interest stuff. So it's really interesting to hear and I and I sort of at the end I was like, what was the point? Because usually, you know, he's he's telling these stories yeah. and then it all leads to a big point. And there seemed to yeah, be no, no.
3: point. It, the point was Orson! Right.
4: Yeah. So, so I guess it, it was, it's more like a, you know, society column in this section yeah. yes. than anything else. Um, but it was for me listening, it, like, again, it was more like a human interest story. The thing that I think Orson Welles is the best at is writing in, in sort of a, you know, almost a poetic, eloquent way, yes. but then still being able to deliver it that way. There's some people who can write really well but it does not translate to radio or to to a speech. But he is excellent at being able to just effortlessly, effortlessly. I can't even do it effortlessly speak these <laughs> just incredible prose or whatever. And uh, so I thought that was that was the most entertaining part.
2: I agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, Terry, what do you got? You you're a home run You Bring us home. We're all on base now. But uh... <laughs> you know, it was
5: it was like. Uh he loaded up the fire hose with names and just <laughs> ran them across the, the radio. Um, I I'm, I'm going to disappoint you a little bit cause I'm going to focus on only a few of these names. There were, we, <laughs> we could spend, we could spend an hour uh, yes. micro, micro dicing and slicing these names, but let me, let me just start with the very first one he mentioned who was father divine. I had never heard of father divine
3: oh, who was, yeah.
5: who was a very famous, um, preacher but uh, the son of um, freed slaves um, he uh, he had something called the International peace movement which um, reminded me a little bit be, between that and his his uh, fight for racial equality he reminded me a little bit of Martin Luther King uh, he and dr. King were both very controversial in their time um, Father Divine got arrested and you know harassed by the police and uh, was really at at the time an extremely famous and dynamic preacher an important preacher for Orson Wells it was just a, you know a throwaway line at the beginning yeah. of his commentary. He yeah. mentioned LaGuardia and yeah, of course today most people know that name as one of the the major New York City area airports but Fiorello LaGuardia of course was also the mayor of New York City and very involved in New York and national, to a certain extent, politics. Wells referred to him as my fellow commentator. And I had to look up and compare the dates. By 1946, LaGuardia was no longer the mayor of New York City. His term ended in 45. And so I I know he was doing some newspaper commentary and maybe he was on the radio as well. Kathy, do you know?
3: There was a famous newspaper strike in New York when Fiorello was still mayor and Fiorello got on the radio and read the comic strips. At the right. Counter. But that was while he was so, still.
5: Mayor. Yeah. Yeah. And, well,
3: still mayor. Yeah.
5: Yeah. So I don't know, uh, you know, so, so why he called it my fellow
3: reference, to, but that's right. He certainly you know, did. Yeah, C- so. certainly
5: did. Um, Wells, uh, one of his recurring themes in these commentaries, of course, is, uh, uh, anti-fascism and brings up um, the the dictator in Argentina and how he was trying to manipulate um, the Italians and it's a it you know it's it's part of the the never-ending theme uh, of of Wells fighting for the cause, causes of uh, freedom, human rights and so forth at a time when not too many other people were sticking their necks out. The war was over, people wanted to get back to life and, and Orson was reminding us that And there-
3: And it would come back to, you know, the retribution from con- conservative critics will be really right. steep by the end of the year. He's right. gonna be basically hushed uh, from right. trying to say these things. And,
5: and then lastly, talking about that um, that um, du- dueling, um, um, newspaper uh, arguments over um, whether or not to encourage young men to uh, to join the army. And, I thought that was uh, the most
2: interesting part. Yeah,
5: well, the government takes out uh, three million dollars or spends three million dollars to persuade uh, young men to enlist. Meanwhile, uh, those who who know firsthand what it's like to to serve are uh, writing about in, in their own. With their own resources, writing about what life is really like, and the the one thing that that's that caught my ear was, um, you know, maybe you should be promoted based on merit rather than the system of bucking for a raise. And yeah. I thought, you know, I've used this expression, heard this expression all my life, and not just bucking for a raise, but bucking the system, and you know, this term, this verb. And I wondered where did it come from.
2: He's saying the, "bucking" with a B, just.
5: Bucking with a B, yes. Thank clarify. you
2: for,
5: <laughs> Yes. Um, and the the word from according to the uh, the old English, uh, the the OED. Um, is uh based on a, a Latin a verb bucare which means to wash in lie and so it's it's a form of you know working really hard for something struggling for something and and in in the military you get a raise not necessarily or got a raise not necessarily because you earned it um, because you deserved it because you proved that you were capable of higher rank but because you just pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed yeah. Um, you know, such a small thing for for Orson Welles to dwell on, except that it wasn't just about this, obviously, that was just one little element of it. It was really the larger issue of, you know, what is the role of government? What is the what is our role as citizens? And Orson Welles always speaking for the little guy and saying, you know, listen to the guy who, who knows firsthand what he's talking about, and not just because someone has a high position in society, has access to a lot of money. He doesn't necessarily know what's best for us. Talk to somebody who's been through it, who's experienced it. And it's perhaps just as true today
2: as it was in 1946. Terry, you do such a nice job. I mean, uh, and just to show that you and I are probably the two that bring the quality to this podcast, (laughs) Uh, the... (laughs) As you mentioned, uh, Father Divine. Uh, you mentioned the international peace. What was that? International peace movement. Yes. As soon as you said international, I immediately went to House of Pancakes, but that is not where you went. So <laughs> it just shows uh, the, the the diversity that we have in this group, and it's amazing.
3: <laughs> I, I would just like to mention if anybody was intrigued by this idea of post-war New York, which was kind of like New York City at its kind of intellectual and social and cultural high peak. There's a wonderful series of novels by um, a woman from Ohio named Dawn Powell, D-A-W-N is her first name, Powell, P-O-W-E-L-L. And she uh, uh, worked for ad ad agencies. And and she um, uh, helped, she was a, um, a playwright and uh, wrote for the magazines. And so she and her husband lived down in Greenwich Village and she writes um, sort of bitterly dry comic novels about sort of life among the glitterati if you're sort of broke, but, and constantly drinking gin. Um, uh, uh, Turn turn Magic Wheel, uh, uh, that's, look them up. They've all been reprinted. And so if you really get into post-war New York, I, I highly recommend th- those for a, um, a novelistic dive. So
2: I just love this between between you and Terry. And there's John and I going, boy, he mentioned a lot of names. I don't know.
3: <laughs> well, I'll, 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 you know, what I, I'll
4: tell you what I like. I, I like that. I like the fictionalized version of New York uh, presented by Damon Runyon. That's my favorite. So if you ever have a chance to read that, that's some good stuff. Yes.
2: Or listen yeah. to his the radio shows. I mean, yeah. they're fun to listen to as well. Um, he, he did uh, do the, I, I love the Bob Hope movie with uh, the um, Lemon Drop Kid yeah. uh, is a, is a Runyon thing. And, and the fact that it has the very first performance ever of Silver Bells. And so yeah, it's nice. just kind of cool for Bob, a few Bob, reasons.
3: Bob, and Guys and Dolls, too. Yes. Right.
2: Yes. Anyway, but we'll stop there. Thank you so much for coming, guys, and uh, I hope you all enjoy this episode of Orson, and uh, we'll be bringing you more great shows, and I just can't imagine a better panel of people to work with than, than all of you, even John um it's all good so, so have a great week i am out to the Inter- international house of pancakes to have some breakfast now so there we go and i thank terry for bringing that up in, in his discussions
1: save me save me a seat at the table this is orson wells speaking i'm giving something away absolutely free gratis and for nothing if you'll step a little closer i'll tell you all about it i may sound like a medicine show but really i'm not going to sell you any snake oil i've got a radio i'd like to give you A fine Lear five-tube table model. It's yours if you'll send me a letter I can use on this program. You don't need to cut off any box tops or mail me any coupons. This is neither a contest nor a commercial. The radio is yours if I can
0: use your letter. We'll get to that in just a minute. It is only two weeks since Lear Incorporated made the most sensational announcement that has yet come forth in the field of post-war home radios. It was the first word about Lear sound on tape. That newest development in recording that's several steps ahead, even of the wonderful wire recording you've been hearing about. At the touch of a switch, you make a record of children's songs, gay times, and broadcasts right from the air. Without a moment's delay, it can be played back for you to enjoy. It's yours to repeat thousands of times, yet any time you don't want to keep what you record, you clear it off the tape just by recording something else. This, plus the fact that tape costs less than wire, makes it inexpensive to build up a library of just the recordings you like best. So again you see what we mean when we tell you that you always can expect whatever is newest and best from Lear. Your Lear dealer will be glad to show you all the advanced features of the new Lear radios. They are features you will want to have in your new radio. Remember, the name is Lear. L-E-A-R. And now, back to Orson Welles.
1: Last week, after much travel and adventure, I reached New York. As the M.C. always says in the nightclub, it's good to be back. It always is. This being not merely the greatest of all the great cities, but one of the friendliest, too. I know. I've been broke in this town more than once, stone broken, even hungry, and I can tell you right now that... If there's such a thing in the world as a good city for a lonely man, New York is it. Since I was here last, the war is over. Yesterday, there was a heart-quickening parade of the 81st Airborne down Fifth Avenue to prove it. Peace, it's wonderful, says Father Divine, high up in Harlem. But he said that before. There are other indications. On Sixth Avenue, now called, for reasons best known to my fellow commentator, Mr. LaGuardia, the Avenue of the Americas... I saw a real sign of peace. A weary taxi wore it like a buttoneer. A gardenia in the lapel of a Bowery bum would be less surprising. The sign read, I take fares for Brooklyn. As it happens, I'm a chronic sign reader. I don't approve of posters, but I can't resist them. I don't condone the ruination visited by paint and paper on this world we have to look at where every prospect advertises, but I haven't learned to look the other way, or rather, I haven't found where to look. The urgent propaganda of popular merchandise spreads with the poisonous gaiety of the multiplying toadstool from marketplace to farmland. The ad man is a voice crying in the wilderness and you will have to fly far and by jet propulsion to find that sanctified subdivision of the skies where the adventuring aeroplane is not blazoning forth the wonders of a mouthwash. Like the secret draftsman in the subway who cannot leave the likeness of a pretty lady without the improvement of mustachios, I have my incurable compulsion. This is to read all that's set before me. Painted or printed, I am a pushover for every single word. But there are compensations. In a pool hall in the Roseland building on Broadway the other night, for instance, hard by the cash register, I found this text. Hand-lettered and hung pointedly over a fat tabby cat. I know you enjoy to pet me, but please do not do this as I have to get my sleep. Then there were the three gentlemen of the Navy who needed their slumber even more than the pool room cat and who were taking it even more enthusiastically at four in the morning on the winter pavement. This was Broadway again, in front of a movie palace, and the sight would have lost its meaning if my sign-reading compulsion had not spelled out the words for me on the one sheet above the three sleeping sailors. It said, Lost Weekend. On the Great White Way, a couple of orange huts have changed hands and the Winter Garden has abandoned itself like an old frump to movies and British movies at that. But Broadway hasn't changed much in a year. It never does. Swifty Morgan is wintering in the south. I found him in Florida two weeks ago behind a beard. It's new and real and quite certainly the unloveliest thing to be seen nowadays at higher But such among the local citizenry who get their sunshine from John the Barber and who take a poor view of palm trees unless they're helping keep the Copacabana roof over Monte Prosser's head are much in evidence at the old stands. Even Winchell, fearful of what a strike can do to a wire, came back in a flash from his winter palace in the Roney and is holding Levy again at the big table by the door in the cub room of the stork. In the Schubert Alley precinct, however, I looked in vain for Phil Gannon and his horse. Phil was a mounted policeman and his horse, named whimsically enough Rover, was almost as warm a friend to one and all as the big Irishman who rode him. Phil, the boys told me, is retired. Nobody knows what cop has Rover today. Even Phil doesn't know. The day he left the force, he just checked in his uniform and equipment and left quietly by a side door of the station without shaking hands all around according to custom or even a goodbye. Somebody who ran into him a few weeks ago reports that Phil has lost a lot of weight and taken on a lot of years. He misses Rover. Seems he left the way he did abruptly and all by himself because he didn't want to know who was going to get Rover and he didn't want the boys to see how much it meant to him. But everything, as I say, is just about the way I left it. The 21 Club has enlarged itself, and I found George G. Nathan where I left him in the same old southeast corner. We had a couple of the same together, during which I learned that H.L. Menken has managed to introduce a new beer to that greatest and most conservative of all beer stubes, Luchow's on 14th Street. We made a date to sample it together. Concerning saloons... George tells me that America's greatest playwright, Eugene O'Neill, who George says has just written his greatest play, is opening a pub out on Long Island, thus realizing a lifelong ambition. Of course, it'll be near the sea, and Nathan has named it for him, The High Dive. Up to this last week, there was one reservation for next New Year's. Theodore Dreiser's death canceled it. I put my name up in his place, but of course, no man can ever take Dreiser's place except in a saloon, and I'm not so sure about that. Concerning saloons, the good word is that the most celebrated of all saloon keepers, Mr. Toots Shore, is, as ever, untouched by his own huge personal and professional success. If the stork is the mermaid tavern of New York, Toots Shore's is the boy's head. Except that here, Falstaff is the proprietor. Toots, like Fat Jack himself, is not only witty in himself, but the cause that wit is in other men. I like his jokes about himself best of all. At the opening of Hamlet, two weeks ago, for instance, it's reported that Toots announced during the intermission that he was the only bum in the audience who was going back for the second act to see how it turned out. And speaking of Shakespeare, I'm reminded of the days when I was playing Falstaff, the original part, in a production which was facing extinction on the road because the Theater Guild had yet to produce Philadelphia Story and Oklahoma, and I was broke. All my radio money had gone to keeping it open. Things were looking pretty black when Toots came up to Philadelphia to see me. Things have been pretty black for Toots, too. For several years, he'd been promoting a restaurant, and there were those around town who said he'd never make it. Now, finally, he'd scraped together a few thousand dollars, and with these, he'd hope to get started. He brought this money with him to Philadelphia. He wanted me to take it for my show. The nearest thing we've ever had to an argument was when I refused. He's that kind of a guy. Well... With that dough Toots wanted to give me, Toots Shore, the cafe on 51st Street, was built and ready to open its doors, and Toots Shore, the impresario, shaved carefully and put on his last good suit. Baby helped him pick the right tie, and before leaving for work, Toots went to the phone to call up his head captain. It was early, but maybe they'd already had some customers. He couldn't find out. The telephone bill was disconnected for non-payment. Toots had exactly a dime in his pocket, but he didn't feel like changing it, so he didn't call at the corner drugstore, and he walked to work. When he got to his new restaurant, the rope was already up. The tables were all full. Toots had a lot of friends. He'll never lose any of them. The rope will never go down. Well, it's said that the Army is preparing to spend $3 million to advertise how pleasant it is to be in the Army. This week, 4,000 soldiers on Luzon held a mass meeting and voted funds from their paltry GI incomes for full-page advertisements in 15 United States daily newspapers to tell the public what they think of peacetime military service. Although the money GIs can raise for advertising won't compare with any $3 million taken from taxpayers for publicity by the brass hats, senators and congressmen know that returning GIs carry votes in their pockets, guess which ads will impress them the most. And guess which ads will impress the young men the army would like to persuade to enlist. Yank, the enlisted man's magazine, makes this comment. We're even willing to give the Army, says Yank, for free without even a 15% commission, some advice on how to make itself more appealing to recruits, how to keep the voting public happy about it, and how to save a few millions of dollars in advertising. Yank suggests more promotion from the ranks and advises that promotions be made on competitive examinations rather than on the well-known process of bucking for rank making promotion from the ranks easier, would naturally attract better material to recruitment officers and prevent the growing officer caste kind of thinking which led Germany into its 130-year cycle of wars, two of which we'll never forget. West Pointers should put in a year as non-commissioned officers before they get their lieutenant bars, says Yank, and also qualifications of political appointees should be made public. Regarding seniority, Yank says there's no evidence that Hardening of the arteries, even in colonels, is an infallible index of brain power. Yank recommends giving G.I.s the same quality of equipment and housing that officers enjoy. Yank says there's been no single cause of G.I. hatred for officers greater than the hatred stirred by looking out of a matchbox barracks or a dust-ridden tent to see your platoon commander breezing off to a soft bed in officers' quarters or a quick one before dinner at the chrome and plastic bar of a movie-type officers' club. Yank says... We believe that improvement within the Army is just three million times as important as publicity outside the Army. Now, I promised you something about free radios, and I promise you I haven't forgot that opening pitch. We're really giving them away. But first, your attention, please, for an interesting announcement.
0: When you set out to pick your new radio, you have a right to expect it to have all the worthwhile new things that have come to radio during recent years. You want it to be a set far ahead of anything pre-war years had to offer. When you see and hear the new Lear radios, you'll know in a minute that they give you the newest advances the radio world offers. And right at the start, these radios will have the distinct advantage of Lear's habit of making only the best. Whatever is good and new that will make your radio better, Lear sets will have. In addition to the new Lear sound on tape, some of the sets have television, some an entirely new remote tuning control that lets you tune any station on the dial without getting out of your chair. And there'll be FM and shortwave. As to prices, that's good news, too. The beautiful console radio phonograph combination that gives you everything costs about $500. Then there's the competent, good-looking model for your table that runs about $19.95. But no matter what you pay for a Lear, you can be sure of this, that you get sound radio engineering, latest features, rock-ribbed quality, and the promise of the fullest satisfaction in a radio made by Lear. L-E-A-R. Now back to Orson Welles, whose views and opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent those of Lear Incorporated.
1: Good friends of the democratic persuasion, I don't have to tell you that a fascist gift is always a fraud. The Argentine government recently won some strong-handed applause from some weak-minded Americans... ...when it announced an outright gift of 100,000 tons of wheat to starving Italy. I had a hunch there was something phony about this grand gesture, so I checked. And it turns out that Argentina has the wheat all right, but it'll only give it to Italy on certain conditions. The conditions being that we supply Argentina with trucks, freight cars, gasoline, oil, and lubricants. ...so that they can carry the wheat to their ports. If we do not supply fascist-dominated Argentina with these sinews of war... ...they won't keep their promise to give Italy wheat. Well, a little earlier I said I was going to give away some radios on this program... ...and unlike the Argentine government, I haven't got any conditions. These radios are made by Lear. They're the five-tube table model, and I've got one for you. If you've got a letter from me, I can use on the show... I need your letters, and I think you could use the radio. I know you like it when you see it. Sounds like a fair trade to me. Let's hear from you. And I've been getting a lot of letters about this attack on fortune-telling. And I've been launching. Here's a challenge. If anybody can give me a prediction which I cannot duplicate... or in any way demonstrate the reality of fortune-telling as something real in the scientific world, I'll give them a Lear television model. That's all for that. My time's up. Let me come to call next week, and thanks for this time. Till then, speaking for my sponsors, the makers of Lear Radio,
0: and for myself, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company.